0: This is why, in 2008 onward, there was an explosion of digital nomadism. This was also when the first Digital Nomad podcast came around. Who was that? (laughs) Digital Nomad podcast. Voice over IP Digital Nomad podcast. (laughs) Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. We got a bunch going on on the pod today. We're going to talk about the early days of digital nomadism, what that might mean for the next days and how we can spot new opportunities. We're also going to talk about why focus isn't always the best thing for growing your business. (gasps) We are going for controversy, uh, which means we are going to argue against focus. We're just going to do it. We're also going to cover some other trends in startups in 2023. So stick around for all of that. First, a few news items at the top. I recently listened to a wonderful episode of the Founders podcast that covered Herb Keller, the co-founder and CEO of Southwest Airlines. Now, this is a really brilliant episode because there, I guess there hasn't been really a definitive book about Herb. And it's a product Southwest Airlines that so many people have used and can relate to It's also an all-time business case study about Southwest Airlines and their focus, their relentless focus on their niche. So we're going to talk about focus today. I thought it would be pretty interesting to bring it up. But one of the things that jumped out to me about Herb is you know, he was this hard-living, hard-partying kind of just work-all-day, never-sleep kind of guy his whole life. Lived until he was like 90. Endless energy. And he seemed to have this relentless positive attitude. And he was always like, hey, today doesn't suck. I am thankful for this challenge, this fight. You know, I'm excited to be a part of it. It's almost like he didn't take it that seriously if shit was going bad. Because it's like, hey, this is an opportunity for me just to have a game, to play, to play the game of life. And I thought that's pretty inspiring because we're in our 40s now. We've seen a lot of shit when you show up to your desk in the morning. And at a certain point, you're kind of like, hey there's going to be shit this morning. And then you kind of put a <laughs> smile on your face. You're like, what's new? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, why am I going to get down about this? This is my job. It is to eat shit, you know? Yes. And so why don't I have a positive attitude? I thought Herb was really inspiring in that front. And he said he learned from childhood that adversity is a normal way of life. And that is not a lesson that all of us learn in childhood. And so, Ian, I thought I'd turn it over to you What is something that you learned in childhood from your parents or your friends that you think benefits you in business to this day?
1: One thing I learned, jokes aside, is just like uh, fierce independence, man. It's just like uh, looking around and seeing what everybody was up to and then trying not to conform. I'm not sure exactly why I was doing that, but like the defiance part of me has stayed strong, I think, since I was a child, which is just like, whatever everybody else is doing, Like not that interested. Like Let's look over here and see what's going on. And I think that that's helped in business a lot. I mean, sometimes it's gone wrong, being too defiant. But in other ways, I think it's gone really well, which is just not conforming to the script that's uh, given to us. And I'd like to think that's part of the reason why we're here on the Choppa Club. Yay! Living these great lives that we're living, running these really interesting businesses, is because it wasn't a script that we were given. It's one that we created and for me some of it was created out of defiance yeah love that you know when i was a kid i remember getting a lot of uh that's because i said so you know it didn't matter like who it was from it was just like that's what i said and that's what it is kind of thing you're just sitting there like a kid, and you're just like hold on a second like uh there's all these other options available and it's like nope it's because i said and then it was like oh okay so if you're in a position of authority you can just say because it's what i said right and then you get to be an adult and you're like, wait a minute, all these rules are made up. Last night I, I went to this uh, function. My neighborhood is all up in arms because they're building a 5,000 person music venue basically in my backyard. Wow. And like all the elected officials were like up on the top of the stage. And then like all of us citizens were down on the floor. And it was interesting just to see people's reaction to authority. But then also there was like a, a fair amount of people that like, didn't wait to speak their turn and like voice their opinions like really loudly and like made it known what their belief system was. I thought it was interesting because there are certain like power structures at play, but then there's also like these social dynamics that are at play as well. So it's interesting to like see people like navigating these systems. It just like reminds me of like when you're a kid, there aren't all these rules, right? And then when you're an adult, All of a sudden, there's like all these rules that you're supposed to follow. But then at the end of the presentation and this whole like public forum, like I went up and I like talked to everybody. Like I like figured out who the lawyers were. I like figured out who the politicians were. I figured out who the grassroots activists were. And like everybody was like really open to like talking and sharing. And so it was like one of these situations where, and I think this is the case in business too, which is like, you just have to be friendly and like you can pretty much navigate anything and get information from anybody whereas like getting back to the beginning of the story it was like when you're a kid you're just kind of shut down and i think a lot of people in the audience at this event they were also shut down because they didn't take the time to like navigate through the systems and like figure out what was actually going on what i took away from this experience and what i've taken away since i was a kid is basically to navigate through these different systems and people all it takes is like a decent personality and a basic willingness to like put yourself out there and like you can get really far in terms of like what the rules it's actually are. Isn't yeah. And like who you should actually talk to. But if you want to stay on the sidelines and be silent, you're not going to get anything done. So I feel like this idea and kind of attitude is, is really helpful in business, especially. What's
0: this mean? I mean, it means like if you're thinking of launching a new product or starting a new business or making a career change, everyone with the answers basically is a phone call away. Yeah, And if you don't have the answers right now from those people, what's going on? And maybe what you're doing is you're just modeling that idea of following the rules that you learned
1: earlier in life and are just simply reapplying it. Do you remember when, um, when I, I think I called you? You were probably overseas and I like called you and I said, like, hey, Dan, I just had a conversation with like our number one valet parking competitor. And I had asked him, like, how many of these valet parking podiums he was selling a year. And he's like, oh, man, it's a lot. (laughs) And I had, like, posed as a customer to, like, figure out that information. And, like, that one conversation and, like, his change in tone in his voice was, like, all I needed to be able to, like, go after this guy in this industry. Because it was, like, clear that he was making, like, a really good living. And that's against the rules. Like, that is strictly forbidden to Robotian. like act someone else. Yeah, I'm even call your a competitor. little
0: bit repulsed remembering that actually. I might uh-huh. retroactively judge you. <laughs> for... <laughs> Benefited from your bravery. Now I'm in a position to be judgy about it. Right. <laughs> That's a really good one. We'll save mine for the next episode because that was such a good answer. Speaking of getting outside of your comfort zones, 400 listeners of this podcast are flying to Bangkok in just a few short days. We mention it a lot because it's important to us. I want to ask you the question. What are you most looking forward to?
1: Well, number one, I'm uh, excited to go to Bangkok. Number two, I'm excited this, this is going to be the biggest event ever. It just keeps getting bigger. For me, I love like taking over this hotel with all these weirdos and having such a good time together. And the other thing that I'm really excited for is uh, we booked a boat. I booked uh, a boat. We booked a boat. You yeah. know how much I hate boats. I know you hate boats, and <laughs> you fought me on this so hard the last couple of days. And I, I love it when you fight me on this stuff because it makes me need to overcome and yeah. like buy your joy. And so I've booked yes. a luxury liner uh, the, yeah. where you may or may not have to wear pants when it's 90 degrees out. But At first, you be were like, a, like, affordable boat. And I'm like,
0: no, I hate boats. And then you're like, luxury boat. And then I'm like, uh,
1: you know what I said about boats? And you're like, luxury liner. <laughs> and I'm like, all right. <laughs> Teak interior. Uh, there's snacks. Yeah. I know you love snacks. That's there's a drinks. I do
0: love snacks and drinks. Yeah, You, you got me at the snacks and drinks on, on the liner.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, I booked a boat for uh, DC Black attendees. Uh, Pretty cool. Yeah, it's going to be fun. One of the things I'm most excited about is hearing
0: from stakeholders in the community about what next steps they want to take. It's not just like a conference. It's also like the annual summit of the community. So I think in terms of like what we're going to do for, say, for example, a 2024 event calendar, we're going to get more momentum in this week or two in terms of team contributors, event hosts, members, and everything. And we will the rest of the year. Like This is the most important part in terms of feedback, in terms of community news and what we're doing. And so... Being a part of that, everybody's in a good open mood sharing like what they're excited to see, what they want fixed, what the next steps are.
1: And we just get out of there like, hell yeah, we are doing all this stuff. It's super exciting. We're so fortunate that basically our members come to this event and they tell us everything that sucks and everything that's great. It's very hard to get that information from people, especially if you're like not meeting up. So like, this is the time when we hear a lot of that. It's really good for us.
0: So Ian, we're both about to embark on long haul journeys across an ocean
1: or two. What are some of your current travel tips? Don't fly from Bangkok across Europe on a 36-hour itinerary to get the business class ticket, tip number one. <laughs> <laughs> number two, this is an obvious one, but like load up your Kindle and your podcast and whatnot. I'm going to listen to the Elon biography. Love it. My tip, how to make coach class business class if you don't
0: have the, the scratch to buy the business class tickets to get one of those inflatable pillows, wear a comfortable pair of pants, use it as an opportunity to reflect on your life, bring a journal. I like to do a little bit of creative work, but my hot tip right now, one of my favorite products is YouTube Premium. And one of the things I always say, oh, I'm going to download things to watch or whatever, And it's hard to get around to it because that's not like how I watch things normally. But if you have YouTube premium, you can just download unlimited amount of videos onto your telephone before a flight. And so you could do a deep dive on a particular topic. And then you can have your journal there. You have your laptop there. You can get some interesting work done. So that's my pro travel trip for 2023.
1: By the way, Dan is the only guy drug-free middle seat on an economy flight. It's like I can't even believe it, but (laughs) you are. (laughs) I'm too lazy to do drugs.
0: It just takes effort. (laughs) A tip from the uh, DCPKK attendees. There's this app called Time Shifter that so many of our friends and members swear by. I'm going to give it a go this time because I'm pretty mystical about this kind of thing. Generally speaking, I let it in God's hands. But... For this trip, I'm taking control. I'm using time shifter because I can't handle the jet lag I got last time. I was jet lagged for like four or five days. So,
1: Wow. Welcome to my world. Uh, Another thing that listeners might not know about you is uh, (laughs) you've never been jet lagged and you've never been hungover despite your appearance. (laughs) So I'm just glad one of the two is catching up to you. Before we get into the main topic today,
0: Ian, I just want to give the listeners a window into my desk this morning because it looked a little bit like the future. It was so exciting. Shout out to our CTO, Simon Payne, who recently launched a feature called DC Connector. It leverages AI. I have a little bit of AI going on. I won't go to the details of how he uses it, but the basic idea is this. We're responsible for connecting people. So I'm testing this thing. I jump into the DC Forum and a new member who's doing some kind of legal entity thing. They're moving a business to here to there. They need legal support, you know, it's the kind of connection that happens in a community like this, right? I got a business. I, I like, have you guys vetted anybody? Have you worked with anybody? Cool. That's normal. Now, you, you typically, is somebody that knows somebody, somebody watching this thread? Or are they in a chat? Or have they recently gone to an event? You rely on these kinds of serendipities. But with AI, maybe we don't have to rely on serendipity. So I take the comment and I drop it into the DC Connector app. And bam, a member who has this exact business, exact expertise, has commented on the past, but not that recently. So it was like monitoring the thread pops up. I make the connection. And then a few other folks pop in because they were connected as well. And this whole thing went down in just a a matter of a couple hours. We talked about last week, an interesting way to think about improving your business is speeding up the velocity at which things happen. And, uh, you know, Elon Musk said in his biography, the only rules around here are the rules of physics. That seems like such a badass thing to say. I'm going to say at the top of our team call next week. Be like, hey, get those rules out of here <laughs> unless they're physical rules. And anyway, so I just think that's amazing because like in the past I might have been like, well, I guess, you know, we're just going to hope that a lawyer sees a thread or maybe I'll put somebody in charge to make the connection or maybe at the next, you know, meetup they'll remember this thread and then connect. It's like, nah, maybe we could do that faster and right now. Pretty, pretty cool. Our first little instance of AI really, I think, driving some value. It'll be interesting to see how the, the DC connector
1: plays out in the coming weeks and months. I think this is like a huge win for like communities in general. This is When we talk about like our strategy for 2024, it's like getting more people together in person to make these types of connections, because historically speaking, that is the most efficient way to do this, right? And so when you have like this little tool and it comes in, it like recommends this person that you can then set up a Google Meet call with and then essentially figure out what you had to do in person or like through five connections, like it accelerates things. So very interesting.
0: Super cool. Shout out, Simon Payne. Shout out, AI. Here's the next question. Is TikTok the blue ocean Amazon was in 2014? Interesting little seg. The opening talk at DCBKK this year will be by Mark Zhang, who got his first war chest of cash from that blue ocean of Amazon in 2014 from a serendipity, from a connection he had at a DC event. He met a high net worth individual in Singapore who sat him down. This is the way he tells the story. Who sat Mark down and said, let me show you my Amazon listings. They're making millions of dollars. And he showed him how to duplicate it with Mark's product expertise. Bam. Now Mark's the founder of Mantisleep, an eight-figure company. Made a critical connection there. But what this high net worth individual shared with Mark was that Amazon is wide open. If you make your listings correctly, you're going to make money. Here's how you do it. Dave Sheffield, who's a former podcast, he's famous for a Vice documentary about his passion for dumpster diving. He's sharing the play-by-play of his TikTok explosion in the DC recently. He says TikTok is that blue ocean right now. In 2023, if you want to make money, it's wide open. Here's how we're doing it. Come get some. What do you think of this TikTok in 2023 thing?
1: I think it sounds a lot like Amazon, except for there's, I don't know, have they turned on the marketplace feature yet? I don't spend a bunch of time on TikTok. I bought Um, my first thing from
0: TikTok this week. Did you? You
1: know what it is?
0: It's a problem that I thought couldn't be solved until I found TikTok. Organic uh, dental floss? (laughs) (laughs) Close, but that's a good idea. I asked myself, Ian, the existential question, are there men in this world who have found out how to effectively clean the sink after they trim their
1: beard? Oh, wow. Because a little little hand-waving with the water in your palm doesn't do the job. (laughs) Continue. I, I wanted
0: to meet the man, the legend, the guru, my master, someone to teach me how... To clean the sink after
1: you you treat, because I don't know how to do it. I have no idea how people do this. I'm guessing you didn't tell yourself you didn't know how to do it. Someone else told you that. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes you aren't always aware that you have a problem to be solved.
0: I went to TikTok. I discovered a product that solves this problem, and it arrived yesterday. And so, yeah, the TikTok shop is live. Dave is having incredible results with TikTok shop. We've had a handful of speakers at DC events talking about selling either direct or using TikTok as a, a distribution platform for their marketing message. It does seem, Ian, that TikTok might be one of the few places right now where people can gain market share affordably for their product marketing messages.
1: I'll say this, been in a very fortunate position to see a lot of businesses over the last 15 years seen countless businesses skyrocket and countless businesses go to zero overnight on platforms like amazon and i would assume tiktok just depending on what the algorithm decides to do so i think it's great i think you can make a fortune really quick i think these things have very limited windows so it's cool to hear that dave is having such success on tiktok tell you what if it was my business i would figure out how to capitalize on TikTok for as long as it's humanly possible. And then I would get out and figure out what's sustainable. Because uh, you are not building a business on your platform. You're building on somebody else's. And the rug can and will get pulled out from underneath you. Uh, I've seen it happen a million times.
0: Very cool. We'll link up the Dave stuff in the show notes and hopefully get him back here on the pod in a minute to share that story. Hey, so you like the show, just want to remind you, we have a website, tropicalmba.com. You can click through on your phone, check us out on the web, hit that subscribe button. I write the newsletter every week. There's a lot going on behind the scenes of the pod. That's the best way to find out about upcoming events, both virtual, in-person, and much more. Check us out at tropicalmba.com and give us some feedback on this brand spanking new website. Because it's time for us spanking Ian, I want to bring you to a little segment I'd like to call the tyranny of a definition. I want to uh, dig into this word called focus. It gets tossed around all over the internet, a startup, a sphere. I think it's really interesting how a definition of a word can mean two different things to yourself or to people at a certain time. And if you don't dig into it, sometimes it can lead you astray. And I've noticed that the word focus in podcasts and startup advice has kind of meant something fairly consistent over the past, call it, ten years, and the definition is kind of changing. I think in the past ten years, when, of course, it's a broad generalization, but I've heard a lot of founders over the past year say something to me like, "I'd love to do that, but I gotta focus," and they don't mean I'm. I don't want to like go take up a career as a country musician or whatever. What they mean is they don't want to build a new product for their customers. What they want to do is focus on selling more of their current product to more people. And I mention it, I flag it up, because this is a decision that we were faced with about a year and a half ago. We were sitting in our office in Barcelona, and we were thinking about the idea of focus. We had a brand called dynamitejobs.com. And the conventional wisdom was, we all know what this is. This is a jobs platform. There's a roadmap here. You need to build a sales team and go out and sell this platform to more mid-market companies. Instead, what we decided to do was start a new website called remotefirstrecruiting.com and a whole new product, which was essentially a recruiting product that helped people use our job site. Now, at the time, a lot of people didn't love this decision, the people that I ran it by, Some people thought it was obvious and the right thing to do. But other people said we should focus on the job board. It's a scalable, repeatable, sexy business model. You just got to focus and do the right things, build a sales team and get more customers for this job board. What we decided instead to do was focus on the things that the customers that we already had wanted. And what they wanted was help using our job board. And so we built Remote First Recruiting, which has turned out to be a very good success for us, a really nice monthly consistent business with a great team for us. So I was thinking about this. Did we lose focus? Some people say we have too many brands, too many logos. What, what does all this stuff mean? But it seems to be working okay. So I put it out there first for feedback, but second, I came across this idea recently. It's in vogue right now, created by Parker Conrad. He's the CEO of Rippling. And his basic idea is that what you actually want to do is build a startup that looks more like a flywheel, like a system, and creates a suite of products that once you get a customer in on one particular product, you move them around a lifecycle. You could also look at this like consolidation. Everyone knows the startup meme of the picture of Craigslist and all these amazing startups that focused on one of the links on Craigslist became... Like a billion dollar startup, like rental houses became Airbnb. And now, essentially, Parker Conrad's idea is now we're in a time of consolidation. And the startups that are really having traction work more like a compound startup and move customers around a suite of products or a system. And I was wondering to myself, like, often bootstrappers are even ahead of the startup ecosystem. So I think we're all familiar with the story of the sweaty startup. Nick Huber's been on this show a few times. He's now famous for his very large Twitter account to which instead of just selling one thing to more and more people on Twitter, he's building an ecosystem of products that where he's moving people through. And so what's the punchline here, Ian? The punchline here is I think what Conrad's found, what Nick's found, and what we've found is that in 2023... It's more expensive to get increased distribution for your product than it is to build out your operation to deliver more product to the customers you already have. Now, this obviously is a calculus that entrepreneurs have always been able to make, but I'm wondering if we found ourselves in a place in time where focus could look like focusing on your customers instead of focusing on your product and finding new customers. Your
1: thoughts? (laughs) Especially if you have a decent customer base. So I think in the examples that you've given, like the customer base is what matters. And so just simply, um, it's more expensive in 2023 to acquire customers than it was in 2015. So if you happen to still have the customers that you acquired, well, they're more valuable, essentially, because it would cost more to acquire them. So I think that this is true, especially because it's just getting more expensive to market. Google ads, Facebook ads, they're all very transparent. There's a million agencies that broker them at this point. Facebook and Google know how valuable they are. The prices have gone up on them. There's new places like we talked about, like TikTok and Instagram and things like that. But those will also become saturated at a certain point, And the price will go up eventually there as well. And I think as like the internet, in my mind, gets smaller, for better or for worse, this is going to be the case, which is if you have existing customers, try and figure out what else you can offer them because it's very expensive to get new customers now.
0: I think there's a deep well of information here. First off, digging into what does it mean to focus? And maybe focus means being very precise about what it is you're going to complete, defining it, and delivering with force. Also just understanding the true costs It's easy to say something like, well, I'm just going to focus on getting new customers. Well, exactly how and exactly how much. And if you do that math, it might turn out that actually something that looks a little bit less like conventional focus could be a lot more profitable and cost effective to do. So tie it back into the top. Sometimes we say these big words that mean really big things in our businesses. And it can be so fruitful to dig down and say, you know what? instead of saying the word focus right now, I'm going to write down the 2000 words that I think focus means right now for us. And we've been doing a lot of that as we've been focusing on improving our business and our operation in the past few years, Ian. There's another word like this that popped up recently that I think there's a lot of fruitfulness in it for us, which is process. We've been saying the word process a lot. And it's like, wait a second before we make any big decisions here about process what if we all wrote down what we mean what we think we mean by that and really sort out whether that's the right term in this moment in time and i don't know if you could come up with a few things like that in your business we've been finding a lot of upside potential there there you go a little segment about definitions know, I want to get your thoughts on a recent podcast episode on the early days of digital nomadism, a topic we've covered. And by a podcaster that's been on the show before, Steph Smith, she currently hosts the A to 16 Z podcast, as well as her own called Shit You Didn't Learn in School. And that's where she recently did a podcast that caught my attention. In the episode, her and her co-host Calvin reflect on their time as digital nomads starting in 2016. Um, and it talked about what the scene looked like at that time before it went mainstream, which was they cite as the pandemic time. So in the episode, Steph and Calvin explore a brief history of remote work, uh, their personal experience with digital nomadism circa 2016, 2017. What was so special for them about discovering that type of lifestyle, especially when so much of the world did not understand it was like illegible to so many people. There's kind of a, an amazing coolness to finding a scene. That's not popular yet. They talked about the tech that enabled them to work remotely at the time and the current and future state of remote work. I think the theme of the episode, Ian, is one of nostalgia and of respect and reverence for a time in their lives when they traveled widely and discovered a new lifestyle and were around people doing the same when it was sceny, when it was sort of hard to discover. And what they were doing was really positive in their lives and in many other lives, but it wasn't often seen as legit by outsiders. And so the episode's got a vibe. It, you know, If you have a moment in your life when you went on an adventure and you traveled and you liked digital nomadism, I recommend this podcast episode. I bring it up because I wanted to respond to it. Um, I think Ian and I, obviously, we started becoming digital nomads in 2008, many years before the epoch that Steph is pointing to. And I thought it would be interesting to get some of our thoughts in a similar vein on this topic, one of my favorites of all time. I want to point out, Steph mentions in her episode that she really wishes someone would write a history of digital nomadism. Someone has. His name's James Clark. We'll link to it at his amazing blog, nomadicnotes.com. In fact, Steph, if you're listening to this, you could have been a virtual participant in a conversation that James and I had had so many years leading up to that ar- article, which is the same thing you guys said on your show. Somebody needs to do this. Somebody needs to do this. James finally sat down, took the time and did it. And then we invited him on our show and we had a, a, a very long discussion around it. So we'll link up to that episode as well. Whew! I want to give kind of an overview of what I see as the critical epochs of digital nomadism.
1: I think it's cool that we're about to like go through the history here as Steph did as well. And I think part of your main motivation here, and correct me if I'm wrong, but for you and I, this happened like years earlier, actually. So like, we're the old guys. Yeah. Y- you listen to this episode. And at least for me, I'm listening to this episode. I'm saying like, yeah, all this stuff is true. All this stuff is happening. But I actually did this like almost 10 years before. And it's not to say cooler, older. No, we're just old guys. Back that were way... That we're, that were doing this. Exactly. Way less cool. Way less intention, probably. There's there's a lot of way lesses, but there is a lot more age involved here. Yeah, I mean, I definitely had that thought. And part of what I wanted to do is like,
0: we could have made the same exact episode and we have many times. Like our, our back catalog is essentially so many similar ideas. And I think it's fascinating that a similar episode could be positioned at a different time. And I remember when we first came out with our podcast, there was a group of digital nomads that were pre-our era who often had a similar response to us, which is like, ah, you guys have finally discovered it, right? But that was one of my main takeaways at at the top is like, there are technologies which we will point to, but a lot of it is about seeing, right? And I think that what Steph is pointing to is a scene that she was in that we weren't in. And what these guys before us were pointing to was a scene that they were in. You know, like, if I were to bump into, uh, you know, like Hemingway's gang on on the Seine in the 20s in Paris, and he's going on about submitting pieces and watching bullfights and stuff, I'd be like, what's the Wi-Fi password, man? I'm just not part (laughs) of your scene. You know what I mean? (laughs) It's just, there's different scenes. And so I thought that was one of the, the themes that came away. But there's also important technologies. I want to underline some of them. I'll point out the 2000 to the 2007 era of digital nomadism. This is the Wi-Fi era. And the Wi-Fi era, the theme is you can make a living with websites. And you needed to be really good at making websites to make money off of them. And some of the early digital nomad pioneers were exactly that. They were uh, direct marketer, direct response marketers. They were sometimes people in pornography. They were people in gambling. They were on the cutting edge of being able to pull money out of the internet via websites. 2007 to 2014 saw an important epoch change.
1: We're going to call this the VoIP era. Nobody says VoIP anymore. It's uh, voice over IP. Simple enough. Skype. <laughs> just,
0: yeah. Skype, affordable phone calls. Affordable yeah. international calling is from 2007 onwards or 2008 onwards. Okay. In 2007, the four hour work week comes out, which is a book that chronicles many of the success stories in the Wi-Fi era, but the readership is in the voiceover IP era. And so all of a sudden the stories that were much harder to achieve when you're just dealing with websites are much easier to achieve when you have affordable global calling. In 2009, if you go to a meetup in Bali, if you go to a meetup in Medellin, if you go to a meetup in Lisbon, the people that are there as digital nomads are likely there using the telephone. The vast majority of digital nomads use the telephone to keep clients going to build relationships with customers and to keep the digital nomad dream alive it's really hard to do it with just a website of course you can it's just not the majority this is why from 2008 onward there was an explosion of digital nomadism this was also when the first digital nomad podcast came around (laughs) who was that Digital Nomad Podcast. Voice over IP Digital Nomad Podcast. We were speaking with our listeners on the VoIPs, on the telephones, as early as 2009. We sold our first e-commerce business, which we run primarily remotely, in 2015, right at the end end of that era. Some of our listeners have called this affectionately the blue-collar internet. Why would they call it uh, the blue-collar internet? It's because if you really were badass at websites, you might have been in San Francisco or New York, right? But if you knew how to use those technologies to say rank number one or to build some cat furniture in China, you know, maybe you'll baseline somewhere affordable and find a way to get that Wi-Fi money. I just want to point out too, there was Steph made an estimation of the total number of digital nomads in the early VoIP era. Uh, as maybe only being a few thousand globally. I don't think that to be true. Having been on the road at that time, I think the number is much larger. As an example, our 2013 DCPKK event, which cost a couple bucks to come to, had nearly 250 attendees. So if you just say our conversion rate globally on digital nomads was 1%, well, you can do the math on that. And we also had a minimum income requirement. Most digital nomads probably didn't even qualify for that event. And so I think even as early as 2013, we're looking at a total number of digital nomads that is very, very high already. And so this was a, a big, big scene, even in 2013. 2014 to 2020, I'm going to call the institutional era. And I think that this is the scene that Steph is largely pointing to. At the beginning of their episode, they point to Nomad's List as an important tool for connecting with other digital nomads. Well, I know a bunch of digital nomads who connected with people off of Nomad's List, and they all, always said the same thing. You know how brands kind of can be boiled down to one word? The brand was always... I, I want to test you on this, Ian. Do you remember what the brand was? If a digital nomad yeah. from the VoIP era went to a Nomad's List meetup, what was the brand? The brand was, uh, I have a job. Jobs, exactly. Yeah. Jobs was the brand. Yeah. And so, again, we have tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of digital nomads, none of which had jobs. And now, all of a sudden, in the institutional era, you could have a job Correct. and travel the world. And importantly, and this is why I bring up the blue collar internet, you could have a job with prestige and at a high end earning power. So now you could work for Hot Jar. You could work for Top Tau. You could work for these progressive San Francisco, New York companies that were allowing their, and some European companies as well, that were allowing their talent to work globally. And that talent wasn't just developers and salespeople anymore, but now it was increasingly things like marketers and customer service people, because those things have gotten more legible throughout the VoIP era in terms of growth marketing, in terms of marketing tools, team collaboration tools, all that kind of stuff.
1: I'm gonna do the old guy thing now. I know you were waiting for it and everybody else is waiting for it. The old guy thing is like, yeah, it was so much easier for you in the institutional era. Yeah. <laughs> Back in my day, we had to create our <laughs> own jobs. You guys just <laughs> rolled up to the institutional era yeah, and you had cool. jobs. That's fair, that's so uh, cool. That's my old guy bit about the institutional era. It's like, we basically didn't have the option To have the jobs, like we had to, that's essentially the reason why we created these companies. We created these companies. Digital Nomad Podcasts. (laughs) We created these companies because there were no jobs. That's right. This this was the job that we created for ourselves. That's right. um, Because we needed the freedom, because we felt all the same things that Steph explained on her podcast, which is like the desire for freedom, location independence, like all of these things that they were seeking, we were also seeking as well.
0: Also in a way, I mean, you know, part of this talk is about scene. You know, you could pretty reliably connect with people in the scene in the 2013-14-15 range because it was so easy to spot each other. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like now that we're in what we call 2020 plus, the work from home, the aka the pandemic era, you just never know. I mean, it could be just someone with a normal job that's hanging out in Chengdu or whatever.
1: And you mentioned Chenggu is so funny on that podcast too. She's like, uh, everybody's like meeting up in Chenggu. Like when we're in Bali, like Chenggu didn't even exist. <laughs> like nobody was in Chenggu because like Bali got so crowded. But but I'll say like Chenggu happened.
0: This is the old guy stuff, but like they exactly. were laying fiber to Seminyak when we were there. And the same scene was in Seminyak. It was just mixed up amongst the other businesses. And then, you know, a few pioneers like kind of took the scene out to Chenggu, which is basically just the rice field right next to where we were all at. So it's yeah. a very similar. I think that's, I guess, my main takeaway is like when you're abroad and you work for a San Francisco company and you have a big income, that's different from like you sell on Amazon and you build it from nothing and you're like flying to the Canton Fair to source it. Like that's a different scene. And so I think we both have nostalgia. When our crew would like bump into people that work for tech companies, to be like, yeah, they all work for tech companies. And that would be the end of it. It's not like a scene for them. One of the things I thought was really cool about their episode is they talked about a time that they were nostalgic for. And in their case, it was the early days of the people that worked for these innovative tech companies and the ability to connect with others doing that before it kind of got flooded. I'm curious, do you have a time that you're nostalgic about?
1: So I'll change the question, Dan, a little bit from nostalgia to one of these things that I feel like can never get taken away from me, which is basically all this travel experience. So some people might see it as like a regret. I don't see it that way. I see it as like a trade. I feel like I personally, and maybe you too, like traded a lot of personal income to do this travel and to like have these experiences. I think in the long run, uh, there's going to be people that like sat down in San Francisco or like took the job somewhere. Maybe they had like a little bit of travel. We had like endless travel. We had as much travel as we endless possibly summer. wanted. Yeah, We had endless summer and we did endless things for a long time. <laughs> In fact, we're still doing it. And I think it, because of that, we've traded a lot of personal income. And that's one of those things that I'm like, I'm very okay with. Like it feels great to have those experiences. It's, it's like for me, you know, so it's kind of a selfish thing, but I'm very happy about that.
0: I like that. I mean, one of the, the big takeaways from... Stefan Calvin's episode is they freaking went for it, and they're proud of themselves, and they had these amazing experiences. One of the things Calvin says is like, "I'm so glad I went traveling in my 20s," you know. And that's a theme that's timeless. I think if you have that itch to go see the world, go, 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 go see the world, you know. And if you can cash flow it, amazing. Keep it going. I think that's amazing. Technically speaking, my favorite era to be nostalgic about is the 2008 to 2012 era, and similarly. That was when I first hit the road, too, in my 20s. So maybe it's that. But the technology that coincided with it was it was post-social media in terms of being able to put things on the web. So let's call WordPress social media or Yahoo store, right? You can still hire a VA in this time frame. You can put information and products on the web and sell them. However, there's no social media in the traditional sense that we think about it now where everybody's got a phone out and everybody's putting an Instagram here, tag me this, there, TripAdvisor that, Google Maps this. There was none of that. And so you really felt disconnected. And there was this disconnected, connected feeling, the polarity of which created the incredible vibe of sitting in the rice field in Chenggu. I remember being in a cafe, drinking the coconut logging on to the web and ensuring that everything was moving along and then when you closed that laptop there was an audible thunk not just because it was an old crappy laptop but because in a meaningful way the world did shut off and there wasn't information about what was right around the corner or who was going to be there you had to go see and that was part of the magic of that backpacker vibe of just being out there and somehow the Wi-Fi VoIP money shows up. And that was a pretty cool era. Although look, you know what the best era is going to be? It's the era when you go do it. That's the punchline. So go do it. Have the time of your life. We certainly did. And yeah, I think one of the interesting things about taking a look at the early days of digital nomadism is just like this distribution issue that we talked about earlier in the episode is that a lot of this boils down to the almighty dollar or to the cheddar, as you would say, boss man. And a lot of it is about money. For us in the early days, it was a Venn diagram of costs plummeting. You had staffing costs plummeting because of the phenomenon of outsourcing. You had publishing and technology costs plummeting because of platforms like Yahoo Store, WordPress, and Drupal. And you had voice communications plummeting. All of a sudden, you can call your sourcing manager in China speak with them for two hours about your new project. It's going to cost you five bucks. All those three things came together to make digital nomadism not only possible, but profitable. So I think it's interesting to dig into some of these things as well, to look at them as competitive advantages. We're looking for cost advantages so we can do things more affordably than other people in our niche or in our sector can do them. So I think it's not just for funsies. But it can be really interesting to look into these tech trends and ask ourselves what the next moves are.
1: Speaking of next moves, sounds like Steph and our co-hosts have like settled down in a location. You and I are certainly spending more time in our location, which is Austin, Texas. What are your thoughts in terms of like how digital nomadism will be treated in the future? Is it the case that everyone always comes back to one location? Is it kind of this hybrid thing, which we're doing, which is like, you know, spend a couple months of the year at different places? Is it full-time digital nomad? What's the future? I think digital nomadism
0: is this tiny, you know those fish that swim along the whales? You know those ones I'm talking about? Oh, the yeah.
1: Little, they, they eat little things. So they don't get eaten by the shark. Some they kind swim of, real yeah. close to the whale. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Digital nomads are that. They're the little fish swimming along and the whale is technology and the whale is globalization. Let's just zoom out for a hot minute. I mean, we are just a few decades away from widespread (laughs) disease, destitution, and no travel whatsoever. Okay. A century. Give me a century and a couple decades. Wow. That's pretty bleak. I think it's one of these things where there's this wonderful article by Tim Urban from Wait But Why. And it's like this graph of the history of humans and then like technology. And it, at the at the very last few decades, in, a century or two, it just shot straight up to the moon. And it's like, you are here. I mean, we were in horse and buggy. I mean, not that long ago, it was horse and buggy stuff. And now all of a sudden, it's Airplane in a romantic comedy on the other side of the world, taking Instagrams and tagging your friends and WhatsApping people and all this. So digital nomadism is simply uh, the little fish on the side of the whale of technology, where it lands us in 20 years time, when it's going to be a decision for our children about their careers, almost you'd be willing to believe anything about it. That, for example, you could have, if I said to you, imagine if I was trying to describe the iPhone in 1995 and the capabilities that it would unlock, the fact that one of our members and I just like had a phone call and they're on the other side of the world and it was like, no big deal. And it will, by the way, flip on the video, you know, and it, oh, send me the document. I think the idea that we could actually feel like we're in an office together is a no brainer. Like dunk it. Tell me something I'm going to be impressed by, you know? So is is digital nomadism, globalism going to continue to march on? If technology has anything to say about it, which I think it's going to have a lot to say about it, then yes, so barring major catastrophe, that seems to be the way things are going, so I'm still
1: still completely bullish this man will not be oppressed until we are teleporting like in Star Trek I can't <laughs> wait for the day <laughs> uh,
0: I think you know one of the interesting things about taking a digital nomad journey or becoming an adventure like so many groups of people before nomads whether it's writers or artists or people searching for whale oil strangely enough i think this is a way to put yourself on the edge of a trend to see opportunities to see past the rules that guild everybody else and to create a business that serves the type of life that you want to live going forward that's the theme of the show that's it for this week thanks for joining me in see ya